Last week, we began a new series on the Lord's Prayer. So for the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer line by line. You may have grown up praying this prayer many times, maybe before you fell asleep at night, but it's good to take some time and unpack the meaning of each of these lines because there's so much good news in each and every one. Last week, we talked about Christ's teachings about how not to pray. And if you want just a little bit of a summary, it's on this screen. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, because they pray in order to be seen by others. Jesus also said, don't be like the pagans, because they think that they're going to be heard by their gods because of their many words. In other words, Jesus is saying, You don't have to seek attention from fellow human beings. You don't have to seek attention from all of these false gods with really long prayers. The one true God, your Father, is already listening to you. He already knows what you need before you ask Him. He already sees you even if you feel unseen. So Jesus starts there. When you pray, do not be like either of these groups of people. And then He moves to the first line of the Lord's Prayer, which we're talking about today. And there is a lot of good news in this first line, but I think that the good news of God's fatherhood doesn't make sense without knowing the human condition. You've probably heard people use this phrase all the time, kind of casually, that what is the human condition? Now, if you think humans are basically okay, that we don't need any help, that we're all good, we're basically happy, that we have all that we need at our disposal in this world, this morning's sermon is not going to make much sense. It's not going to land for you. But here's the thing. This is not what God reveals to us about the human condition. For example, the Apostle Paul uses a lot of words about the human condition when we don't know Christ. He calls us separate from God that we've excluded ourselves, that we live without hope, without God. He even uses the term far away. In the letter of Colossians, Paul writes that we are alienated from God. We're enemies of God in our minds. In the passage we just heard from Galatians, Paul even calls us slaves to sin. Now, whichever word you pick on this screen, just so you know, this is not a departure or a disagreement with Jesus. Jesus himself uses these kinds of phrases and words to describe the human condition. He says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He refers to some of his opponents as children of the devil. He tells us that the whole generation in which he lived was wicked and adulterous. So Jesus and Paul are on the exact same page. The human condition is not okay. The human condition is that we're separate from God. We're far away from God. We're estranged from God. But then, all of a sudden, in the New Testament, Jesus gives a prayer to his disciples. He gives them permission, even a command, to use this phrase, Our Father who art in heaven. So how is that possible? How do we get from children of the devil to children of God? How do we get from separation to togetherness? How do you get from excluding yourself to be included again? How do you get from far away to calling God Father? 
That's what we're going to look at in Scripture today, and we're going to kind of take an overview. We're going to see multiple times in Scripture where God reveals to us what this really means and how this is possible, and I think the best place to start is Adam, because in the Gospel of Luke and a genealogy of Jesus, we're told, kind of given a list of fathers and sons. We're told that Methuselah is the son of Enoch, who's the son of Jared, who's the son of Mahalalel, who's the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who is, say it with me, son of God. Think about how amazing that is. From the very beginning of the human race, God referred to us as his children. And that's true because God made Adam and Eve in the image of God. This phrasing is even in our, our English language, right? When we see a son who looks exactly like his dad, what do we say? That boy is the spitting image of his father. From the very beginning, we're made in the image and likeness of God. He thinks of us as his children. This is why we named our ministry with our brothers and sisters on the streets, All God's Children. We believe that to be true. It's not a fun name for a ministry. We believe it to the core of our being. All it takes to be a child of God is to be a human. But I think the biblical story gets a little bit more complicated from there. Because the second time someone is called a son of God, it's not just an individual like Adam or an individual like Eve. It's the entire people of Israel. On the first pages of the book of Exodus, God sends Moses to Pharaoh and he says, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my what? Say it with me, firstborn son. And I'm telling you, Pharaoh, let my son go so that he may worship me. So in some sense, all of Abraham and Sarah's descendants, all of the Jews can say, we are the children of God. But it's even more complex and more beautiful than that in Scripture. The third time someone is called God's son, it's not because they're just a part of the human race or they're just part of the family of Abraham. It's actually a role, an office among God's people. When David is sitting on the throne, God appears to him and promises him something. And I want you to slow down and read this. This promise that God makes to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up, say it with me, your son to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And listen to this promise because it's not just for Solomon, David's son. It keeps going. Solomon is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So every descendant of David who sits on the throne will be God's son. I will be his father. He will be my son. So Adam gets to be called God's son. Israel as a whole gets to be called God's son. And all of the Davidic kings get to be called the sons of God. That's in the Old Testament. But let me tell you, there is a sea change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because as you read the Old Testament, you see a lot of people are very reluctant to ever go all the way and call God my father. Even though they're called sons, they're still hesitant about identifying God as their father. There's no one who confidently in the Old Testament says, God is my father. 
We just read a passage from Jeremiah. And we're reading from God's perspective, and it sounds like he's a little bit annoyed that the Israelites are calling him my father. He says, have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. So even in the Old Testament, God is saying, y'all are pretending to be a lot closer to me than you really are. You're calling me my father. You're calling me my friend. That's how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. The level of intimacy required to call God my Father is very rare in the Old Testament, even if it exists at all. That is, until you turn to the first pages of the New Testament and immediately notice absolutely gone is any reserve when it comes to calling God Father. By the time you reach the third book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, there is someone who has called God Father 65 times. By the end of the Gospel of John, over 170 times. Something new is happening. There is one person on the scene who confidently calls God his Father. And it turns out that his followers confidently call him God's one and only Son. Now, all of our writers of the New Testament know what we know about the Old Testament. They know Adam was called the Son of God. They know that that Israel was called God's son. They even know the Davidic kings are called sons. But there's something about this Jesus of Nazareth. There's some kind of special relationship he has with God, a unique sonship that no one else has. This is such a big deal, we cannot underestimate it today. This claim is so radical that other Jews who lived at the time of Jesus believed that when he called God Father in this way, he was blaspheming. This verse is from the Gospel of John. There were other Jews who tried all the more to kill Jesus because he was calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. Every time Jesus uses this name, he wasn't saying, I really like the concept of God and God really likes me. He was saying the Father and I are one. He was making himself equal with God, which is either the most important truth in human history or absolute utter blasphemy. And because it's true, it's the most important truth in human history. If he really is God's one and only son, then the Lord's prayer finally begins to make sense. Jesus makes it possible for all of us estranged children to once again call God our Father. Because, y'all, by, by ourselves, we are separate from God due to sin. We, due to our failings, we are far away from God. But the only begotten Son makes it possible for us to be in the family again. That's the whole gospel right there, right? That the impossible relationship with God is made possible because of Jesus. I love this quote from Rowan Williams. He's a theologian and used to be an art, archbishop of Canterbury. He says, we have the nerve to call God what Jesus called him. Can you believe the nerve of calling the creator of the universe Father? Well, yes, that's possible because we're united to Christ. And just think about this for a second. I know it's going to look weird on the screen. Read that top line. God didn't settle for just saving us from sin. He went further and made us sons. Have you thought about that fact for a second? 
He could have just forgiven us without making us family. He could have pardoned us and said, all your sins are forgiven, but that's the extent of our relationship. Instead, he doesn't settle for that. He goes so much further. We're all prodigal sons and daughters, and he wants us to come back home. He wants us to call him father again. Jesus ran to us while we're still far away and brought us home. Now, look, I know what I'm about to say could sound horrible. If, if you're not a Christian or you may feel far from God or if you're watching online, I know this could sound strange. I'm just asking you to give me the next minute and hear me out. The implication of what we're saying this morning is that not everyone has the same relationship with God. And here's what I mean. Let me be absolutely clear about this. Without Jesus, you can never fully know what it means to call God Father. Without Jesus, you're always dealing with a gap. You're always dealing with a detachment. You're always going to deal with some sort of alienation from God. That's what you're missing out on without Jesus of Nazareth. And yes, you can say, well, because I'm a human, because I'm made in the image of God, I'm a child of God. And that is true. But you've got to take into account sin and the way it separates us from God. Because sin is our self-exclusion from God's family. Without Jesus, sin takes away your opportunity to be a son. Um, I know I've focused a lot this morning on the first two words, but I want to take a second to focus on those last four. We pray this each and every week, our Father who art in heaven. And this last phrase is so important for clarifying any confusion about God's fatherhood, okay? Um, uh, every single week, uh, Alice and I are a part of a Bible study with young professionals in the city of Austin, and we meet over at our friend's house, and we've actually are studying the Lord's Prayer uh, together, and we went through this first line, and we read it out loud, and uh, the leader asked uh, some questions about this first line, our Father who art in heaven, and the first person who spoke said that um, she didn't have a dad growing up. And so it was hard for her to imagine God as a father. And as I was preparing this week, I kept thinking about all the people who may be here or may be watching online uh, who can't even imagine a good earthly father. And so it's hard to imagine a good heavenly father. Um, I think it's so important to look at this last phrase. God is our heavenly father. He is not an earthly father. And whether your earthly father was good or bad or mixed or however you evaluate him, our father who art in heaven has none of the flaws or imperfections of any earthly parents. In him, there's no darkness. There's no evil at all. He is a good heavenly father. He is not defined by any earthly father or mother on planet Earth. In fact, we should define fatherhood and motherhood by God's definitions, not the other way around. Second, I think this is so important because we know, because of this first line, that God is waiting for us in heaven. Yesterday, when we were at that art auction, 
We got to hear the speaker, uh, the, excuse me, the founder and creator of Brookwood in Georgetown talk about her daughter. Her daughter uh, was born with uh, severe uh, special needs and passed away a couple of years ago. And they kept repeating this over and over, and it just overwhelmed me. She, everyone kept saying, Gracie is in heaven. Gracie is in heaven. And every time we say, our Father who art in heaven, we know who Gracie is with. We know that every one of the saints of this church who has passed on and died and gone to be with the Lord, we know who they're with. They're with our Father who art in heaven. Right now, all of the angels and saints who have ever died with faith in Christ are enjoying perfect happiness in the presence of our Father right now. There, there is a world beyond the one in which we live with war across the world and discontentment in our lives. And that world has no pain. It has no suffering. It has no death. And I don't know why, but I, I think it's become more common to avoid talking about heaven at church. Maybe there's just been some silly depictions of heaven in TV shows. I, I don't know. But we can't avoid or ignore this good news. When you die with faith in Jesus, it's not lights out. The light of God gets turned on. You get to see God face to face. You get to be with our Father in heaven. No more separation. No more estrangement. The veil is lifted and you get to see your Father. This is why I love the opening line to the Lord's Prayer so much. It's the gospel on both sides of death. Right? Through Jesus, we get to call God our Father on earth. In this life, you can know that you will never be fatherless because you know God. And through Jesus, it means we also get to see our Father in heaven. There's no more obstacle to seeing Him anymore. We will see God as He is. Man, these six words, it's like they contain the entire gospel in one sentence. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're being reminded of the good news in this life and in the world to come. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer again together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.